0: Well, if you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14. We are in the book of Ezekiel. We've been in the book for, um, well, for a long time. We are in chapter 14, continuing a a verse-by-verse exposition, a walk through the book with occasional breaks here and there, but mostly we're trying to make it through the book over the next year or two, Uh, and examining there what it is the Lord gives to His servant Ezekiel about... Oh, about 2,600 years ago, I believe. Uh, But what I've uh, tried to show you with the Lord's help um, is that the message that the Lord has given to Ezekiel so long ago still speaks to us today, still confronts us in our sin, and still draws us to repentance. And so we are in chapter 14, beginning in verse 12. And the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh came to me. Son of man, remember that's son of of Adam, son of the dirt. Son of man, when a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, and I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread and send famine upon it, cut off from it man and beast. Even these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, excuse me, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, They would deliver but their own lives by their righteousness, declares the sovereign Lord, the Lord God. If I cause wild beasts to pass through the land and they ravage it and they be made desolate so that no one may pass through because of the beasts, even if these men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters. They alone would be delivered, but the land would be desolate. Or if I bring a sword upon that land and say, let a sword pass through the land, And and I cut off from it man and beast. Though these three men were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither sons nor daughters, but they alone would be delivered. I hope you're beginning to sense a theme. Or if I send a pestilence into that land and pour out my wrath upon it with blood to cut off from it man and beast, even if Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, as I live, declares the Lord God, they would deliver neither son nor daughter. They would deliver but their own lives, By their righteousness. For thus says the Lord God. How much more when I send upon Jerusalem. My four disastrous acts of judgment. Sword, famine, wild beasts and pestilence. To cut off from it man and beast. But behold. Some survivors will be left in it. Sons and daughters will be brought out. Behold when they come out to you. And you see their ways and their deeds. You will be consoled. For the disaster that I have brought upon Jerusalem. For all that I have brought upon it. They will console you when you see their ways and their deeds, and you shall know that I have not done without cause all that I have done in it, declares the Lord God. This is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. I want to talk to you this morning about a what I call a 50-cent theological word, and that is righteousness. I want to talk about righteousness this morning, and in part because that's what Ezekiel's talking about in chapter 14. For most of us, righteousness is not a word we use in daily life, except the only exception I could think of, uh, as I thought about it this week, was maybe like the surfer dude who says righteous, right? That's the only exception I could think about, about righteousness, or, or the word righteous being in our kind of everyday, most familiar speech. And I think that's probably in part because... The reality of our imperfection is kind of baked into us in Western culture. Again, influenced by Christianity, of course. But you know, you don't have to be a Christian to know that you are not perfect. Uh, so so it, feels, it would feel odd for most of us, I think, to speak of ourselves as righteous. I think we should, but that's a different matter. But the language of righteousness does seem foreign to to a lot of us in terms of its use in daily speech, such that if I were to stand up here and say, I am a righteous man, most of you, your gut reaction would be to think me really proud or maybe a little crazy, or at least you'd want to double check with Marissa to see if that was true. (laughs) But I want to show you this morning that righteousness is so close and relevant to your everyday life everyday life and you know it already you just don't call it righteousness okay you know it already you, d- you just don't call it righteousness the reality is we all want to be proven righteous and by that I mean in the end however we're defining that either end of life or just end of the day or end of this difficulty that I'm in in the end we all want to be proven right Okay, whatever we thought, however we acted, whatever we said, we want to be proven right in the end. And you want that. It's the reason why when you have an argument with someone and you walk away still mad and you're stewing in your mind and the next morning you're in your shower and what are you doing? You're rehearsing that argument in your head, right? And, and going over what you should have said. And in that replay, are you not just breathtakingly brilliant? The way you use your words and, and slice and deliver just the right time to shut that other person down. And, and they just crumble and they say, you're right about everything, right? That's how it always goes in the replay. D.A. Carson once said, I've lost many arguments in my time, but I've never lost a replay in my head. Now, why do you do that? Because you want to be righteous. Okay? You want to be proven right. And, in a real sense, you want it to be declared Outside of you, you want somebody else to say it. You want somebody else to say, you are right and you are okay. So that the voice inside of you, to put it that way, can confidently say the same thing. And when neither external voices outside of you nor the internal voice inside of you says, you are right and you are okay, you are at war. That war can look like anxiety or depression, or anger, or addiction, or loneliness. It can also look like an obsession with school, or work, forcing yourself to climb to the very top, because you need to hear those external voices say you are right, and you are okay. So that your internal voices can say you are right, and you are okay. Everyone wants to be righteous. The problem, though, is that we know we're not. That's why, by the way, the voices in marketing and advertising and even sports and, um, and, and schooling and academics are, are constantly surrounding you and bombarding you with positive affirmations, right? Or magazines in the grocery store. You are great. You are beautiful. You are enough. You are worthy. You are okay. And we can barely make ourselves believe it for five minutes. That's why we have to be constantly bombarded with it just to begin to believe it might be true. If any of that makes sense to you, if any of what I just said resonates with your spirit at all, the bad news, of course, is that you already know that to actually be righteous, to be at peace with yourself, to be okay, might require a lot of you, might require some kind of radical sacrifice because you know in your heart when you examine your life that's not how things are. What if it requires you to give up something you think you need or something you think you are. And if that's not obvious to you, the idea that, that to, to be righteous, to be okay, might require some radical sacrifice, I would just say, then, then entertain the idea for a minute. What if that requires radical sacrifice? What if, what if to, to attain to peace in this life and steadiness and just a sense again i'm i'm righteous i'm okay to to attain to that what if it means you need to give up something you think you need or something you think you are that's scary it makes you want to run or hide or both because giving up what you think you need to be okay feels like a kind of death okay and here's the reality Everyone wants to be righteous, but nobody wants to die. Everyone wants to be righteous, but nobody wants to die, to give up something. What does that have to do with Ezekiel? Prophet living as an exile in Babylon about 2,600 years ago. Well, Ezekiel is speaking to people who are desperate to be righteous. And they are chasing after it in all the most twisted sorts of ways. We've already seen that pretty much since chapter 8. And over the course of those last few chapters, we've seen some wild ways that they're chasing after righteousness. In this one, Ezekiel pinpoints two ways that sinful Israel is trying to be righteous. One is they're excusing themselves. They're saying, yeah, I mean, I know God deals with sinners, but I mean, come on, I think we're going to be okay. And the other, so excusing themselves or accusing God, basically saying, you know, I mean... We, we believe in Yahweh and all, but let's be honest. Like He's, he's just kind of mean, and, and, and we can't really bear to live under the things he says, and it's really unfair if you think about it. So excusing themselves or accusing God, and I'm going to show you that from the text. I want to show you how that takes shape in Israel's heart and how it takes shape in your heart and mine and why Jesus answers both of those for us today. And the way of following Jesus is often scary because it will be the end of all you think that you are and the beginning of what He has designed you to be. And as a reminder, everybody wants to be righteous, but nobody wants to die. So let me talk about that first point I mentioned earlier, that we we sinners, we like Israel, have this temptation to excuse ourselves when we're confronted with our unrighteousness. Israel was God's covenant nation. He made this covenant with them to be their God forever. They were, and this is really not an overstatement, they were by covenant married to the Lord. In the next few chapters, you're actually going to see the Lord using marriage language in a way that will make you very uncomfortable. We start by saying that uh, to, to Israel, we start by noting that they've acted faithlessly. So the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel. He says, when a land sins against me, which is interesting, he doesn't, I mean, land could be anybody, by acting faithlessly, so that assumes a covenant right there, though. So we are talking about Israel. So we have a broad principle, but also we are speaking about Israel. In fact, this language uh, in verse 13, a land sins against me by acting faithlessly, in, in, in Hebrew, it actually is, is more like when they faithfully engage in infidelity, <laughs> Right? So, so when, they're, when they're committed to hating me, when they faithfully engage in their infidelity, and so Jerusalem falls under God's judgment. He's giving this hypothetical. The rebellion's not hypothetical, but he says this is what's coming. I stretch out my hand against them in judgment. They rebel against God. They've committed idolatry, and in this text, we see four things that God names as kinds of judgment that can befall a land that rebels against him. So let's look at those briefly. First, God poses a series of hypotheticals. The first one, he says, if I break the supply of bread, should be verse 13, just highlighted by itself. Okay. Uh, When I stretch out my hand against it and break its supply of bread. In Hebrew, literally break the staff of bread break their supply, and send famine. So we have famine as our first one. The second one, if I cause wild beasts to ravage the land, was the next one he says in verse uh, 15. nope oh, sorry. Uh, wild beasts to pass through the land so that they ravage it if be made desolate so that no one can pass through it. The Hebrew here means to, to empty the place out, to make it dangerous to go through. So we've got... Uh, Uh, famine and then we have wild animals and then in verse 17 our third hypothetical is if I bring a sword in other words that's war Uh, and then finally if I send a pestilence that is a sickness or a pandemic so we have these four kinds of judgment sword that is war famine that's hunger and starvation Wild beasts, that is exactly what it sounds like. Wild animals, not just attacking the cities, but emptying out the land, as it were, of its resources. And pestilence, that is illness and plague and pandemic. And apparently, we can gather from the text that there was a prevailing attitude that if if we just have a few righteous people in our city, we're going to be okay. A few righteous people in our city, and we can live however we want. They were excusing themselves by hiding behind the righteousness of others. And so God comes to them and says in verse 20, Look, even if Noah and Daniel and Job lived in your city, it's still getting wiped out. They won't rescue you. They're only going to rescue themselves, frankly. Okay? Which is absolutely stunning. It's kind of one of these rare moments, actually, when you have this look back on on other characters in biblical literature. Because Israel was like a wife who believed her husband existed, you know, we believe Yahweh exists, but absolutely despised him. The average Israelite living in Jerusalem was probably saying to himself, you know, I look around, I, I, see, I see I've got some godly neighbors. We're probably going to be okay. That's probably good enough. We actually, I think, tend to do the reverse today, which is, um, I've, just, I've seen this in play in, in the thinking of some, Um, peers of of my age a bit younger and a bit older which is like if I have friends from every religion then I like attain some sort of spiritual balance um, by running through the buffet in a balanced kind of way. So if I have friends from every religion and I'm like accepted by them and and I, I can find my righteousness there then that makes me okay. right? Look at my neighbors. Look at my family. There's another one. Look at my family and how godly they are. That's what makes me okay. And what you have to hear today what Ezekiel was trying to communicate to people in Jerusalem and people, again, in his, uh, who, were, who were close to him in Babylon, is that none of your sin, your evil, your selfishness, your unbelief, none of those things are hidden from God, and you cannot excuse yourselves from them. You have to confront the question, do you know God? Do you know God? Not does your family know God, not do your parents know God, but do you know God? Or is he an abstract concept? Or is he a person that you know? To put the question another way, do you love God? Let that one sit with you for a minute. Do you love God? I remember Bob Vincent telling a story of when someone asked him that question, and he said his immediate response was, I love the honor of God, I love the strength of God. Okay. Do you love God? Plenty of church-going people eh, would say they believe in God. You know, just, what, what do we, and what do we say with that? It's good to believe in God. That's a good thing. James has something to say about that, though. In the book of James chapter 2, verse 19, we find these astonishing words where James says, you believe that God is one. You believe in God. The, the right one will even say, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, James says, you believe in God. Good for you, so do the demons. So I'm asking you, not if you believe in God, I'm asking if you love God. That's the greatest commandment, isn't it? In Mark chapter 12, you shall love the Lord your God. That's the great commandment. Not just know or acknowledge or even believe that He exists, but that's part of it, certainly. But you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, I mean, and if you love God in that sort of way, does anyone need to explain to you what that is? And this is this is the the, the absence that Ezekiel's pointing to, that there's a difference between loving God and, and being around people who love God, or having friends who love God. Both are, by the way, very important, very vital, very necessary for the Christian to be around other people who love God. But you cannot trade on the borrowed righteousness of your friends or your family. This goes for parents too, by the way. Your kids, your children cannot live on, on borrowed righteousness from you. I mean, when we, when we bring uh, a child into our covenant family, when we, when we baptize uh, an infant... We are not saying, because of your parents' faith, you are saved, little child. We are saying, we are placing God's covenant promises on this son or daughter with the confident hope that they will one day confess the God of their parents as their own. And that is costly, by the way. I'm speaking both to parents and to their covenant children. It means well, let me just address the covenant children for a minute. If you've grown up observing your parents exhibiting costly obedience to Jesus, it is rather understandable if something in your heart says, um, may, maybe not. Maybe I don't want to. Maybe I'm scared. Maybe the, 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 the Jesus-centered life that they are living looks hard. It is. It's costly. It means you might have to endure some things like they have that can be scary because everyone wants to be righteous but nobody wants to die so God's is talking about judgment in this part of Ezekiel he has been for some time of course he says that judgment is coming he makes a reference back to these uh, these four things that we've talked about four disastrous acts of judgment sword, famine, wild beasts and pestilence which by the way mirrors the um, horsemen of, of death and revelation same, same kind of language same four things are in play um, death and its writer. And its um, this is a summary statement of, of what we've talked about so far. And then we go to verse 22, and there's really kind of something shocking. Oops, sorry. Um, where there's this this turn, but behold, some survivors will be left in it. Now that probably surprised you when I read it. Because you're just reading about kind of destruction, sword, famine, pestilence, wild animals. It's all over, but there will be survivors. Okay, that's why there's the behold, by the way. It's like, oh, but wait, wait, look at this, look at this, don't miss this. Some survivors will be brought out, but not, this is not really remnant language. In other words... What I would have expected to read is some will be saved, some will repent, some will come to the Lord. That's not what we've got. We get language like survivors will be left, not a remnant will be saved. Those are two very different things. What happens though? These survivors show up in Babylon and God says something very interesting in verse 23. He says, you will see their deeds and you will be console they will console you because you'll see their deeds and you'll know that I've not done without cause all that I have done in it in the land verse 23 says they will console you when you see what they do what does that mean at first you might think it means when you see the survivors you'll be comforted because they were spared yay they've come out they're spared they made it out alive and that's really not what god is saying He's saying some survivors will make it to you and when you see their evil and the way they live and how much they still ignore and despise and reject me, you're going to look at them and say, wow, God was fair. And He was not, a, he was not harsh with them like we thought. You're not going to look at them and go, wow, God really you know, kind of went overkill with these people. Once you get a good look at them, you will look at the actions of these sons and daughters of Israel and you will say, Oh, I get it. I get it. This word, the ESV translates console in 23 and in 24, the Hebrew word carries the sense of relieving tension. So what's the tension? What's the sorrow that needs consolation? It is the idea that God has acted in anger and we did not deserve it. You do realize, first of all, that if that is true, if God acts in anger and people do not deserve it, you really should despair. I mean, you really should be without hope. But secondly, when we think this way, what we're doing is accusing God. So in the first part, they were excusing themselves, right? As long as we got like, good people, good neighbors, good families, and God said, look, even if Noah and Daniel and Job are hanging around your city, you're still in trouble. And then the, then now, they're, now they're accusing God, and God says... No, once you see them, you'll get it. God says He is just and He always does right. And our temptation, when life gets too hard, is to look to the heavens and say, liar. It's always the temptation that confronts us in pain. As God says, I'm just, I know what I'm doing, I am good and I do good. And our temptation, when life hurts, is to say, liar. And the Lord says to His people when the survivors show up, when you get a good look at them, you will be consoled and comforted by the reality that the judge of earth always does right. And you will never again accuse me of being a monster or a liar. And i got to be honest, that thought in one sense is unbearable. Like, and I think what, what I mean is that it's, it's difficult to bear the thought That one day, one final day, when we face, when we stand before the Lord in judgment, and we have to give an account for our lives, as everyone else does, our eyes might take in all the secret evils in our hearts and in the hearts of our neighbors. And you and I cannot right now bear the thought that our reaction would be, wow, we really do deserve hell. Because everyone wants to be righteous and nobody wants to die. And so the impulse or the, the temptation is to accuse God. This is what they were doing. This is what the exiles were doing. They were saying, well, if God judges, it must be because he's really easily irritated. And again, death and hurt and pain and suffering again, all remind us that we're really limited. We don't like that reminder. God even goes over this, this uh, group of three. Again, I mean, you think of what He's saying. He's saying, even if Noah lived in your midst, even if Daniel lived in your midst, even if Job lived in your midst. Noah, who was called a righteous man, and he saw God's wrath against the obviously wicked, and he praised God after it. Job who was called a righteous man and saw great suffering in his own body, in his own family, and was called to praise God in it. Daniel saw the wrath of an earthly king come to nothing. And that king was driven insane until he praised the God of all creation. And indeed, Daniel's name means God is just. To put it in a very simple way, God cares about what you think about him because if you're wrong that is already killing you everyone wants to be righteous but nobody wants to die and so sometimes it is a severe mercy of the lord to make certain that we know him as he is not as we've imagined him but as he is and love him for all that he's revealed to us in his son jesus at the end we do have this guarantee that our God will be vindicated. We have a God who will be vindicated. And in the the now, we have a need, our need to be righteous. We want to be righteous. We're tempted to excuse ourselves and our own sin to make it the exception. We're tempted to look at our neighbors or our family or our idols for our righteousness or our our Noah's, our Job's, our Daniel's. And so, or, or listen, let me... To take this a bit further. Even if Noah or Job or Daniel lived in your city. Even if you could align yourselves with. I think to use Ezekiel's language. The three most righteous guys I can think of right now. To say because I'm aligned with them I'm okay. We don't do that today do we? Because I'm aligned with this politician or this party. Or this way of thinking about uh, sexuality. Or this kind of music. Or this kind of denomination. Because I'm. Rightly aligned with these people or these causes or these kinds of churches, that means I'm okay. And God says, find the most godly politician, find the most godly church you want. Find the place that has all the best music and preaching you actually like and can tolerate. Find the best political party with all the right values. Find the best family with all the right practices. Find the best school or university you can. Get into the best degree program and none of it will deliver you or your loved ones, only Christ, only knowing Christ, only loving Christ, believing in the gospel, only by these things will you receive a righteousness from outside of you that can actually cleanse you and leave you holy such that on the last day you are prepared to face all the evils of the world and the flesh and the devil with cheerful gratitude. In the meanwhile, it'll cost you because everybody wants to be righteous, but nobody wants to die. We are tempted to accuse God, to begin to believe He doesn't love us or care about us, or more commonly, commonly, just simply doesn't have the care or the power to hear your prayers and what you need. Right? That, I think that's the temptation that confronts us more often, right? The temptation to believe God simply doesn't care or He isn't strong enough to heal my marriage, to steady my anxiety, to heal me from sickness, or to give me faith to bear it with joy. And so I invite you and I plead with you, come to Jesus Christ and believe. Jesus Christ is the one who accuses Himself so that you will be counted righteous and excused from the judgment on the last day. And you will stand with Noah and with Daniel and with Job and all the other sons and daughters of God by a righteousness that is not your own, but is a gift from Jesus Christ the Righteous One. He will silence your excuses because neither you nor your neighbors nor your friends nor your parents, can save you. And He silences your accusations because He enables you to point the finger at yourself, O Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And then bears all of your sin and failure Himself on the cross and calls you to worship Him no matter what your circumstances are. This is the good news of the kingdom that Jesus fits you for worship. Of him by delivering you, freeing you, liberating you from the slavery of your excuses and your accusations. And even if he doesn't take away your circumstances, he delivers you from the only thing that can actually kill you your own excuses, your own accusations, your own sin. So trust him today. Worship him and love him with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. Here your God meets you. So come and welcome to Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, we ask and plead that you would bring us in, that you would put an end. I pray for myself. I pray for my household. I pray for this church that you would silence our excuses and that you would help us to to accuse ourselves first. And so to see the marvel of the gospel of the glory of God in Jesus Christ who rescues even us. Help us, Lord, to confess, to speak truly about you and about ourselves. We need your grace for this, so we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen.